Good morning. Let's start with a question today. What is wrong with the world? Thought we'd ease into it a little bit. A nice little simple icebreaker question. What is wrong with the world? One thing that everybody seems to agree upon is that there is something, in fact, wrong. And answers to that question have been offered throughout history in all sorts of ways. It's really a question that's only slightly younger than the world itself. Some have said that what's wrong with the world is economical. The problems of the world are driven by class warfare between powerful elites and common people. And yet, will the world's problems really disappear just because we have a more even distribution of wealth? Others say it's psychological and how we need to find our true identity and live authentically as our true self. But who gets to decide what our true self really is? Others say it's sociological and our problems can be overcome with tolerance and education. But who gets to decide what's taught? And of course, what's wrong with the world does express itself economically and psychologically and sociologically. But each of those answers is just far too simplistic and one-dimensional. They fail to account for the complex reality of life itself. Because each of them fail to really answer a deeper question. How do those problems get there in the first place? Now, I think at this point in my life and in my journey as a Christian, if someone were to ask me, Zach, why are you a Christian? Over and against all the other things that you could believe. Zach, what are your reasons for belief? Well, I'd have a few answers to offer. But probably my first answer to sum all of them up is that simply Christianity is the only story that seems to make sense of the world. It's the only story that takes the problems of the world seriously. It's the only story that presents a God worth believing in. And it's the only story that presents a future worth hoping for. Amidst all of the other narratives and stories of this world that are offered up to you to believe, the Bible comes in and says it is the true story of why all things came to exist. It's why you exist. It's the story of your significance and meaning and purpose and why life matters. It's the story of your greatest hopes and your greatest desires, but it's also the story of your greatest devastations and heartaches. And last week, we started a series that will take us through that very story from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. And to do that, we actually need to meet the Bible on its own terms and realize that the Bible is not a rule book. The Bible is not a book teaching us how to be a good person. It's fundamentally the true story of the whole world. It's telling us what's true amidst the way that things are. Which means that it also has to answer the question, what's wrong with the world? And if it can't answer that, 
then it's not a story worth believing in. And our passage this morning is that part of the story. It's that part of the story that wants to tell us what's wrong with the world and the part of the story where everything falls apart. And I want you to see that what we see in Genesis 3, what it's telling us, is the only way of really understanding the complexity of life and how all of the places of our greatest hopes are also the places of our greatest heartaches and hurts. And it helps us understand why the world is the way it is. And it offers us the true story of the whole world. The serpent enters the garden into God's holy garden temple and he tempts Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God commanded them not to eat. But how does he tempt them? What does he actually tempt them with? He tempts them by attacking their understanding of God's place in their story. So he starts by casting doubt on God's words to them. And he says, you know, did God really say? And then after that, he casts doubt on God's goodness towards them by saying that, you know, God only told you not to eat of the tree because he knows that if you do eat of it, then you'll be like him. Why wouldn't he want that for you? Sounds like maybe he's withholding from you. Sounds like maybe he doesn't want good things for you. Sounds like maybe he can't be trusted. If you notice, the serpent doesn't really talk about the fruit, does he? It's because the fall is not just a story about eating a piece of fruit. Do you see the real temptation? The serpent attacks God's place in their story, and he tempts them to believe the lie that they didn't need God. And they could become the main character. They could still have everything they ever wanted. They could still have everything they ever desired, and they didn't need God in order to have it. They didn't need to be governed by his words. They didn't need to trust in his goodness. They didn't need to center their lives around him. It all started with the lie that they could be the authors of their own story. And so, of course, we all say, yes, sin lies at the heart of the problems of this world. But what lies at the heart of sin? It's autonomy. It's autonomy. It's the belief that's buried deep in the heart that says, I don't need God. I don't need God. I can be the main character. I'll decide who I am. I'll decide who I should be. I'll decide how I should act. I'll determine my own significance, my own value. I'll determine my own purpose. I'm going to live according to my truth. And I don't need God to do it. Does that sound familiar? Well, I hope it does. It's because this story isn't just about what happened to Adam and Eve. It's also the story of what happened to us. The fall is not just an event. It's an explanation. It's the only way of understanding the world because their story is our story and we fall the same way they fell. So regardless of whatever sin you struggle with and whatever way sin takes place and takes root in your life, we're so prone to focus on the action. We focus on the piece of fruit. And yet, Genesis 3 invites you to see the deeper layer. How that sin is deeply rooted in the confession, I don't need 
God. I don't need God. I'll decide what's good for me. So we turn away from what God says is good and right and true and beautiful and virtuous and valuable and precious and lovely and life, and we choose autonomy. God gets erased, and our hearts say, you are dead to me. So Adam and Eve ate the piece of fruit, and everything falls apart. And the first thing we see is the result a new reality that's caused by the presence of sin. It says that their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. Now, when the Bible talks about nakedness and it uses the word for nakedness, it's not necessarily talking about nakedness the way you and I think about nakedness. It's not necessarily talking about clothes, although that's true of Adam and Eve. It's talking about a deeper reality of their life. It's a euphemism that describes a deep shame. A deep shame that has now been born within them. That peace and that wholeness of their identity is now fractured at the deepest possible level, and it's replaced with shame and the knowledge that something is wrong with them. Shame isn't the feeling that I've done something wrong. It's the feeling that I am wrong. So how do Adam and Eve respond to this new reality of sin? They hide. They hide. They cover themselves with fig leaves. Why? Because now shame has become the motivating factor in their relationship. Which means that now they view one another as a threat. Now they felt exposed. Now they felt vulnerable before one another. And that once beautiful marriage is now broken. And those fig leaves that they're wearing now represent the fact that the new focus of their life is about hiding and protecting themselves. It's the new reality of sin and the shame that it produces. And their story is our story. To be born in sin is to be born in shame. And the ongoing presence and reality of sin means that it's going to try to govern your life by shame in the same way that it governed theirs. Sin naturally makes shame the motivating factor in how we engage the world and others. You know, if I just stopped right here, and I told everyone here present this morning in this nice full room today, I told everyone just to stop and turn and to just look at you. Not to say anything, but you'd hear everybody turn. All eyes would be upon you. Would you feel a little uncomfortable? Why? You're wearing clothes. It's shame. Buried deep in the heart of man. Shame that wants to keep us from being seen. And we feel that vulnerability within us. We feel our flawed existence. And we do what they did. We hide. We don't want others to see us. We see others as a threat. We're concerned about what they do see when they see us. We don't want to be exposed and seen as we are because we don't want to be mocked and ridiculed or rejected or abandoned. 
And that shame only gets reinforced in a world of sin and broken relationships with broken families and broken parents and broken friends, broken people, broken communities, where we hurt one another. We take advantage of one another and everyone does what's right in their own eyes for their own benefit. Shame abounds. And that shame feels like a verdict that's passed over your life. And something that echoes constantly and deeply within the heart. A verdict that sounds something like, no one really likes you. No one would accept you if they knew who you really were. You're a fraud. It's always your fault. You don't belong. You're damaged goods. You're not worth sticking around for. You're a mistake. And we feel that shame and what happens. We hide. We construct our own fig leaves to cover that shame that we feel, and so we construct something on the outside to hide how we feel on the inside. So we kind of duct tape together an image for how we want the world to see us. We want the world to see us as the the great parent with successful kids, the happy couple, successful entrepreneur or suburbanite or the wise and spiritual one who play the role of the good girl, the funny guy, the helper who's always there and never says no. We're the dependable one. We're strong. We never show weakness and we have it all together. We try to control how the world sees us because being seen for who we really are is just too threatening. Shakespeare was right. The world's a stage and we're all actors. And in the end, sin teaches us how to construct something on the outside to hide who we are on the inside because sin produces shame and shame teaches us how to hide. And therein lies the vicious cycle because all shame does is reinforce that lie of autonomy that we believe. That we can handle things on our own, we can deal with our own shame, we can cover it over, and we can go about life in a way that seems good to us. It teaches us how to hide from one another, but most of all, it teaches us how to hide from God. It says that Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, and they hid themselves among the trees. Why? Well, it's because now they view God as a threat as well. And they hide. So as we focus in this series, or our focus in this series is that we want to see who God is. We want to allow the story that he's telling to reveal who he is and to show us what he's like. So as God enters the scene, what does Genesis 3 here teach us about him? I want, you to see this, how, I want you to see how this passage gives us the framework for how God will engage his fallen people and bring redemption. Because this story is your story, which means it's also how God engages you and brings redemption in your life. God enters into the garden and he calls out to Adam, where are you? God enters into the garden and he calls out to Adam, where are you? So right there, what can, what can we see? Well, it's just the fact that God shows up in the first place. He doesn't just abandon this world. 
and the story's over. No, God shows up and he steps into this broken world doing what? Looking for sinners. He comes looking for sinners. He doesn't come and just smite them immediately and just blow things up with a nuclear bomb. No, he comes looking for sinners. And he says, Adam, where are you? Adam responds and says that he heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden and he was afraid, so he hid because he was naked. But then God asks another question. He says, did you eat of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? Now, what's going on here with all these questions? Well, God isn't asking these questions because he needs the information. He's not trying to piece together what happened. No, he knows exactly where Adam is. He knows exactly what Adam's done. So why is he asking these questions? He's giving him an opportunity to confess. He's giving him the opportunity to take ownership and responsibility for what he'd done. He's giving him the opportunity to stop hiding from him and to draw near to him by confessing. But why does God do this? Well, do you see the beauty and importance of confession? Confession is about reestablishing God as the authority in your life. Because confession is when we say, I've messed up. I've disregarded you. I've disregarded your words. And I've gone my own way. Confession is the beginning of how we reestablish God as the main character in our life. But Adam passes on that opportunity. And instead he says, it was the woman you gave me. She's the one who gave me the fruit. It was the woman. It was the, the beautiful Brick house, I believe, from last week. Must be buried deep within the Hebrew of this passage that I overlooked. Adam says it <laughs> Adam says it was the woman you gave me. She's the one that gave me the fruit. And here we see the reality a new reality of how sin works. It rejects responsibility and it justifies itself by using others. But not only did Adam just reject responsibility, did you see how he blames God? It was the woman you gave me. This isn't my fault. I'm just a victim in this story, bro. It's just the circumstances that you placed me in. It's your fault. Then God turns to Eve, and she doesn't take responsibility either. She passes the baton down the line, and she blames the serpent. And God gives them the opportunity to confess, to take responsibility, and they pass. And then we see God pronounce judgment and the consequences for their sin. And all that was once beautiful and good is now cursed. I want you to see if you can understand life through what God says. To the woman, he says, he will multiply her pain and childbearing. In pain, she will bring forth children. Her unique place and privilege of bearing children in this world is now marked with pain. This isn't just talking about labor and giving birth, not just about having children, but about raising them. 
It's going to hurt. Then he says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. This language is the language that describes the sting of unrequited love. Your desire will be for your husband, but he won't be there for you in the way that you once knew or in the way that you desire because he's going to be concerned with other things. Now introduced into your marriage is a power struggle to be valued, noticed, and appreciated. And to Adam, God says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you will eat of it all the days of your life. The creation that you once had power over will now produce thorns and thistles and fight back. It's going to wage war against you. You will now only eat by the sweat of your face, and you will toil your entire life in pain and in sweat until the very end of it, where you will then return to the ground from which you were made in death. And instead of reaching the glory for which you were made, you will return to the ground. For you are dust, and to dust you will return. So not only do we have the reality of sin and shame, now God adds pain into their story. Pain. Pain in their childbearing, pain with their children, pain in their marriage, pain in their world, pain in their work and pain in their death. And then God drives them out of the garden, east of Eden, to cut them off from the tree of life, and they step out into the only world that you or I have ever known. Now, I read through all that pretty quickly. But I did that for a reason, because what do you think of it? How do you process all that? What do you think of God as you see and hear him in this story pronouncing pain. I ask that because, quite frankly, it's so easy to oversimplify it and read this in a way that just flattens God into a harsh, angry judge. After all, these curses introduce all this pain, so it's easy to look at this as though it's just cold, clinical punishment. And of course it's punishment. A law was broken. For what hope do we have that any justice would be done in this world if God was just indifferent towards sin? But if all that we see is punishment, and that's all that we get out of this part of the story, then as we move forward in the story, all you're going to see is a flat, two-dimensional God. And the God in this passage is not flat and two-dimensional. And so I want us to take a closer look so that we can have a deeper understanding of who God is. Because I want you to see these curses not just as punishments, but also as an expression of his love and his grace. And that can be hard to see. It can be hard to see underneath all of this pain. And you think, how could this reveal God's love and grace when he introduces all of this pain into the very most precious and beautiful places of our lives? Well, first, let's at least just remember that what we already said, God enters into the situation looking for sinners 
giving them a chance to confess and to draw near to him. And that same God gives these curses. So we need to go a little bit deeper. Did you notice that when God pronounces these curses and deals with Adam and Eve, did you notice that it's written in the form of poetry? What cold clinical judge writes his verdicts in poetry? None. There's more going on than just that. It's written in the form of poetry. This is a song. This is a dirge that God sings over his fallen creatures. This is God grieving over the reality of this broken world. But we have to go even deeper. If you remember back in our Advent series during one of the the sermons, we looked at Adam and Jesus. And we talked about how when Adam and Eve fell, God never took away their desires for the garden. He never took away their desires for the very things for which they were made. God never took away their desire for relationship and love and intimacy. He never took away their desire for joy and beauty and peace and power and security. He never took away their hunger for endless satisfaction. It's because he never took away man's desire for the glory for which they were made. For eternity is buried deep in the heart of man. God let all of that remain. He didn't take any of it away, but he does introduce pain. Why? Well, if you think about it, what are the things in life that people look to for their identity and significance and satisfaction? What are those areas in life that represent our greatest hopes and desires to give meaning and purpose to life? It's children. It's love and marriage. It's work and it's health. It's all the things that we see God curse in this passage and introduce pain. So how can that possibly be an expression of his grace? Well, what happens when that endless desire for joy and satisfaction is now mixed with sin and selfishness? If Adam and Eve couldn't resist a piece of fruit, what do you think would happen in humanity's heart whenever they see the face of their newborn child? What do you think would happen in humanity's heart when they felt the affection of a lover? How much would they look to their work to give them meaning and value and to find some sort of purpose in this world? What links do you think they would go to to stay young and beautiful and become immortal? How much would humanity consume all of those things to satisfy the endless desires in their hearts? To me, the far greater curse would be to live in this world thinking and believing that those things will bring the satisfaction and purpose and meaning that we truly desire and never being awakened to the reality that they can't and they won't. And pain is that reminder. Pain is the reminder that this world is broken and not as it should be. Pain is the reminder that there's a desire within us that we can't satisfy and there's a hunger for something that this world can't offer. Pain is the reminder that we were created for far more than anything that this world can give you. But we still have to go a little bit deeper. 
Because in this fallen world, where does God meet with his people? It's in their pain. It's in the places that we feel the sting of this sinful world. The reality of our own decisions. The reality of the decisions of others. And in the heartache that it produces. God introduces pain in those places of our greatest hopes and greatest desires because when else is it that we cry out for him? When else is it that we cry out to him and we come to the end of ourselves but when we struggle with the pain and struggle of our kids? When we feel the hurt and difficulty and disappointment in marriage and in relationships? When we feel the strain and toil of our work and labor and when disease and sickness remind us of our frailty? When else is it that we actually cry out for God but in pain? What else awakens us from the lie of autonomy that we have everything under control and everything is just fine but pain? This passage helps us see a glimpse of how God is going to meet with his people in this story. It's in their pain from beginning to end. He met Eve in the heartache of losing Abel and he gave her a son. He met Israel when they cried out to him in their bondage in Egypt. He met Hannah in the heartbreak of her barrenness. He met Elijah in his depression and his devastation. Time and time and time and time and time and time again. This is exactly where God meets his people. They come to know who he is. And he brings redemption. It's in their pain. And why is it so important to see that? It's because if sin entered the world when man said, I don't need God then what grace it is that God would introduce pain. Because it's precisely in those moments that we finally say, God, I need you. God, I need you. Written inside of these curses, we see the way God tells this story. And how the seeming paradox of things that are woven together is how it will unfold. How those places of our greatest hopes and our greatest hurts are woven together. Written inside of these curses, we see that God will tell his story in a way where judgment and mercy, purpose and pain, joy and sorrow are woven together. This is how God reveals himself to his people and how he will bring redemption into this world. Because when Adam and Eve left the garden and they entered into it, God gave them something precious. They left the garden with a promise. It's called the Proto-Evangelion, or the first gospel. Because even from the beginning, it's the first time that the glimmers of the gospel are spoken. And we see it in verse 15. When God tells the serpent that one day through the woman, there will come one who's going to crush his head. One day, the main character is going to come in flesh and blood. In these words, we see judgment and mercy once again woven together. For the same words of judgment upon the serpent are the same words of life for us. And when Jesus arrives on this scene, the God we see here in Genesis 3 is the same one we see in flesh and blood. 
Because just like we see here, Jesus steps into this sinful world looking for his sinful people to meet them in their sin and shame. He comes looking for sinners and gives them the opportunity to confess, to see who they are, to see who he is, and invites them to make him the main character of their story. He too entered into this world with the same grief over the reality of the world. That's why we're told he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That's why he bore our pain and he carried our sorrows. And we see him meet his people over and over in the pain and sorrow of the curse of this world. That's why he hears the blind man crying out for him at the top of his lungs on the side of a busy street. It's why he finds the outcast old woman who had bled for a decade who still tried to hide from him in her shame. He hears the cries of his people and he meets them in their pain. And just like we see here in this passage, it's ultimately at the cross where we once again see the judgment and mercy, curse and grace, joy and sorrow, hope and heartache are woven together. For Christ received the judgment that was ours so that we might have peace. He was forsaken so that we might have redemption. He was cut off so that we might come home. His death was our life. So don't give me a simple religion. I say don't give me one with easy answers and prepackaged conclusions. Give me one that can actually make sense of the paradox and complexity of this world. Give me a God that tells a story that can bear the real weight of real life with all of its beauty and all of its brokenness and can explain why the areas of our greatest hopes are also the areas of our greatest hurts. Give me a story that can account for the life that we live but also the life that we desire and long for. Give me a God who can take the pain of this world and transform it into something precious. So friend, where are you at this morning? Do you feel the weight of sin and shame in your life? Have you been hiding? Do you feel the curse of this world and the pain on it and in it? Do you feel that pain in your relationship with your children? The pain of heartache in your marriage? the pain of toil in your work, or the pain of frailty in your health. You feel the reality of the pain in this world and how those places offered such great hope and yet they're places of such great heartache. To enter into this story is to be invited into one that is absolutely a seeming paradox and all of those things are woven together. But I would say this, amidst all of the things that you are offered in this world to believe in, a God that cannot deal with your pain is not a God that's worth believing in in the first place. A God who just throws his hands up at the pain of this world the same way you and I do is not worth believing in in the first place. Pain is a reality of this world, and yet we're invited into a story to see that this is the God that meets his people in it. This is the God who uses that pain to reveal himself to his sinful, broken, longing people. It is fundamentally how he tells his story of redemption. And so I would say, above all, your pain is what? 
It's an invitation. It's an invitation to understand perhaps that this is how God is telling your story of redemption and the means that he will reveal himself to you. And it's the opportunity to say, finally, God, I need you. You're all I've got. And you're all I have. And he's the God worth pursuing because in Genesis 3, we see from the very beginning that he makes promises. And Jesus is the proof that he keeps him. And these promises are for you, for your children, and all who are far off. For the glory of Christ and the life of the world. Let's pray.